More than 70% of the world's population is predicted to live in cities by the year 2050. With this growth in urbanisation comes a change in lifestyle choice, with more and more people adopting a Western diet, which is linked with higher prevalences of obesity, diabetes, malnutrition and a host of other health risks. But how exactly is the Western diet eroding the health of global cultures? And is there an ideal diet out there that should be taking its place? Hi everyone, I'm Matt Eastland. And I'm Lakshmi Balthasan. Welcome to the Food Fight podcast from EIT Food. We explore the greatest challenges facing the food system and the innovations and entrepreneurs looking to solve them. To help us answer these questions and to discuss the topic in detail, we're joined by two fantastic guests. First of all, I'd like to welcome the founder and executive chair of the EAT Forum, Dr. Gunhild Stadalen. EAT is a global platform where science, politics and business come together on the topic of sustainably feeding a healthy population. Gunhild is an established scientist and sits on several boards and councils, including the World Economic Forum Stewardship Board on Food Systems, the Global Future Council on Food Security and Agriculture, and the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. She has also won many awards for her pioneering work in this space. Gunhild, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by the head of food and brand at Planet Nourish, Anjali Vias. Planet Nourish is a new online platform working to tackle diet-related illnesses in a diverse range of communities across the UK. Anjali is a food anthropologist, chef, and branding expert focused on how we communicate food systems and policy. Not only that, Anjali is also the host of the Empty Plates podcast. Amazing to have you on the show, Anjali. Welcome. Hi, Lakshmi. It's so lovely to be here. I'm excited. We are too. So the culture of food is so rich and varied around the world. And today we want to spend some time just looking at the correlation between different food cultures and health outcomes to see what we can learn about what an ideal diet could actually look like. But maybe we start with actually, you know, what is the Western diet? You know, what's your interpretation of it and what does it mean to you? Gunhild, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I first of all, let's be very clear on one thing, and that is that the Western world is, of course, full of diverse culinary traditions. There is so much great culinary variety here. So when we talk about the Western diet today, I interpret that as really what has emerged over the last four or five decades moving towards more ultra-processed, meat-heavy, sugar-loaded foods based on a handful of stable crops and processed to death, and where really rice, wheat, soy, and corn make up the cornerstone of that diet. And of course, lots of cheap industrial meats. And we are talking about the pre-made pizzas and the highly processed cereals and burgers and all of that. And that is not something that is unique to the Western world anymore, but I think that is what we mean by the Western diet. And Anjali, from your perspective, do you agree or do you have anything to add? Coming from India, my heritage is Indian by way of East Africa because of my parents and British. And then having lived in India for eight years myself, I feel like I arrived back in the UK and sort of in the the global north with feeling that there's a slight disconnection. And I think when Gunhild talked about the Western diet, I think the main thing that the Western diet is speed. In my mind, it's drowning in speed. Before we think about even the diet, it's just the culture that controls everything. And that is speed. So, and that actually affects 
the diets all the way around the world at the moment. So, yeah, I, I would say it's the two combined. And so when you say speed, you mean convenience, everyone wanting everything, you know, immediately. Yeah, exactly. I think it's our addiction to speed through industrialization with the hope that industrialization will create a pathway towards people having more time. It's actually created a pathway for people having less time and being mm. more reliant on things to be quicker for them. And again, exactly like Gunhild said, is that we require food, our daily sustenance to be there quicker for us. So I think it's this trade-off between food and speed that we're constantly arguing with within the Western diet. And that is sort of seeping into other areas of the world. So I guess there's a reason why it's called fast food. Exactly. <laughs> Can I just comment uh, on this? I couldn't agree more, Angie. This is what I actually call the sugar-coated home alone party that the food industry has been having. We have been introduced and taught to be snacking, which wasn't a, a thing of the past. We are constantly surrounded by cheap, ultra-processed, ultra irresistible foods and we don't need to do anything but pick up the phone to get it delivered on our door. And we're talking about the obesogenic food environment. And I'm always saying that today it's almost impossible to stay healthy and make sustainable choices when it comes to food. The default is to be fat, sick and depressed because of the food we eat and also obviously very unsustainable for our planet. So this is the result of well, lack of governments governing and lack of the right policies in place uh, and lack of true costs of food accounting. And Gunhild, do you think that the Western diet, because you were talking about, you know, rice, etc., do you think that there's been a homogenizing effect of the Western diet so that it's kind of starting to, we have all these rich, diverse cultures and culture and, and foods that surround that, but is the Western diet kind of, it's sort of making that all kind of flat and everything the same? Yeah, I mean, we like to believe that we have many choices when we go into any supermarket or grocery store. But if you look at the ingredient list, you will see that basically everything is made up of those four staple crops. So wheat, rice, soy and corn that make up more than 50% of the calories in the world. And the diversity is disappearing. 74% of the world's food is now made from 12 crops, uh, five animal species. Although there are so many thousands of edible plants and thousands of edible species from oceans and aquatic sources, etc., etc. So I think a key components of getting back on track when it comes to healthy, sustainable diets is more diversity. So it sounds to me that it's not really the Western diet being so unhealthy. It's like the modern Western diet. So where do you think the Western diet went wrong? Where did that transition happen from being diverse and sort of suiting the needs of the individual, the diversity of the Western population? Where did we go wrong? Uh, well, I think this is back to the, to the Green Revolution and where it was all about producing more and more calories, thinking quantity, not quality and policies in place to really scale up production of cheap food. And obviously it started in the in the US and has spread like a wildfire around the world. We are talking about the nutrition transition uh, where populations all around uh, the world are now moving away from their 
uh, scarcely processed diets, mainly plant-based towards ultra-processed Western eating patterns. And again, I think this is really where governments have not taken responsibility. It has been the food industry that has been let alone to do whatever they want. And obviously cheap ingredients, pushing more products to more people, uh, increasing portion size really without the proper uh, policies and regulations in place. I guess it's that double-edged sort of industrialization, right? It was there. It was needed, you know, if we, as we got out of World War II to produce world food quickly and cheaply. But then I guess we just took it too far and we made it a very industrialized the food system has become quite negative and unhealthy for us. Anjali, sorry, did you want to add something? One of the issues I have with when we talk about Western diets vis-a-vis sort of Eastern diets is the fact that it doesn't take into, first of all, we're labeling, we're using a label culture to go Western and Eastern diets, which I think in this day and age is a very, I don't think it's the right way to label diets because the is, I think it's the diet of speed is essentially what we're talking about because in the last 10 minutes, all we've talked about is industrialization, industrialization. If we go back to the Western diet, let's say European diet, sort of a hundred years ago, we knew what we had. We, we know the grains that we were had where we were eating local grains, we were fermenting we had ancient processes that were utilized based on the climate that we had based on what was locally grown so I would say it's the diet and culture of speed that has really sort of found its way into our global nervous system when it comes to food so when we think about India right now as the Indian subcontinent is the fact that India for example is having the same disease of this culture of speed. So the diet that used to support everybody before was a local diet. It's a seasonal diet that really still supports everybody because the seasonality is so aggressive. But the culture of speed, and because there's a population of over a billion, it has to support people at different levels of that ecosystem. And what we'll generally find at Planet Nourish is that it's the people that are at the top part of this food chain that have a sedentary lifestyle, that are able to have access to a lot of the resource and be a part of the speed are the ones that are having the most detrimental health impact within their communities. So I think when we think about the characteristics, it's not labeled with anything. The problem has been speed and money and revolution mm. after revolution that we've had, which I think is changing now. Uh, we are having conversations to look at different ways in which we can think more locally. But like Gunhild said, is it said that we have siloed policy. Policy isn't made in collaboration. Departments are still siloed within government. So as a consumer, you will look to your government and you will make an assumption that obviously on the outset, if a new policy comes out, everybody is working in collaboration internally, but that's not actually what happens because you have an obesity policy here, a nutritional policy here, and a net zero policy here, and they're all siloed. There's gaps. Gunhild, I can see you're desperate to jump in. Go for it. (laughs) Because I I so much agree with what Angie is is touching up on now, and we are really at the core of the problem here, the silo thinking and the siloed institutional setup. In addition to what Angie just uh, said, I mean, it's such a paradox that agricultural policies around the world, they do not 
take into account health and environmental outcomes. Although we know that food is number one driver for premature mortality and disease in the world, it's number one driver of climate change and environmental degradation, yet these policies are basically ignoring it. It's about profit-seeking and it's about GDP. So uh, even in Norway, we don't have health as one of four overarching objectives for food and agricultural policies. And that is such a paradox and irony, again, because why are we producing food in the first place, right? Uh, mm. And there was also a UN report coming out this fall saying that 90% of the world's agricultural subsidies, governmental agricultural subsidies, go to support the production of something that is harming people and or the planet. Literally madness. I think the solution here to get back on track is really to for governments to step up and start to govern. And we know they can. We have seen that through COVID. And obviously, we know that it's around 11 million people dying prematurely every year because of bad diets and that diets are now killing more people than tobacco, alcohol, drugs and unsafe sex combined. Mm. So governments really need to now step up and create coherent food and agricultural policies that cut across uh, ministries and where everything is connected from agricultural subsidies through public procurement, taxes and incentives and all the way up to national dietary guidelines, because that is also crazy, right? That mm. governments in one ministry, they are subsidizing with billions of dollars every year, the same thing that another ministry is trying to combat in terms of the obesity epidemic. So governments need to walk across the corridor and really start talking together to get this right. Absolutely. Yeah. People are slowly starting to get the, wrap their head around this systems approach, right? And like both of you said, working in silos is just so detrimental and probably is a reason why we are in this bit of a pickle right now in terms of the impact of food on health and on the planet. I think we've done like a really great deep dive now into both of your um, interpretations of the Western diet, which I think we could summarize as really not the Western diet, but the industrial diet. Before we kind of go on to unpick different types of diet, let's hear a little bit more about both of you and specifically what you're both involved with in the space. So Anjali, starting with you. So you're part of Planet Nourish. It's a digital health platform that's focused on helping families tackle type 2 diabetes, starting with the South Asian community. And you spoke a little bit about this community, but tell us a little bit more. What are the common features? What are the common diets? And why did you specifically set out to help this group of people? With the South Asian community that resides globally now, there's migrational communities around the world that are South Asian. And the, the thing that ties them to who they are is their food and food in community. And, and the reason why we have so many problems in food is because food is essentially so personal and so hidden that we don't want to talk about it. Governments don't want to talk about it because they know it's the highest commodity, but also it's so personal that they don't want to interfere in a hidden space to encroach on someone's mindset, they want to signpost. However, when connecting it to health, it's a government's responsibility to get involved. And I think at Planet Nourish, because our founding team are all of South Asian culture too, and we deal with this problem of type two diabetes every day within our own families. So we're a collective of five South Asians, uh, four women, one guy, and all of us have at least two or three people in our family that have type two diabetes. Every single member of my mum's siblings and my 
all of my mum's siblings, my grandparents on both sides, and my parents have type 2 diabetes. Now, I wondered to myself, why is that such an issue in my community? Now, statistically, South Asians are six times more likely to get type 2 diabetes than any other ethnic group. So if I'm sitting in a room, I am more likely to get that and probably die and suffer from that than anybody else sitting in that room with me, which is quite a difficult thing to think about. Now, the problem with type 2 diabetes, again, is... It is type two diabetes is lifestyle related. It is lifestyle related and it wasn't an issue historically. And this is why where migration really plays a, a central role in it is that when people were working in a labor centric jobs, when they were working using their bodies, having a high carbohydrate diet, which a South Asian diet actually is in Asia or in Africa was necessary because you burnt off the calories. But in today's world, across where there are South Asian populations globally, we are living sedentary lifestyle. However, we're still attached to that same cultural eating. Now, in addition, we have the Western diet laid on top. So this Western diet for this, if I was to define it here, would be non-ethnic Indian food, non-South Asian food, which is you might have toast in the morning, but you might have curry in the evening. So the idea is that you've got a layering of these multiple diets in one. But what they end up doing is creating critical health impact for a whole community, not just for one person. So what generally happens and which is the reason why I would refer to type 2 diabetes as an endemic in the South Asian community, is that we think it's just a rite of passage. It's almost considered that, oh, my mum had it, my dad had it, I'm going to have it. And the nature and the culture around how to change your lifestyle based on all of the ethnic foods and the diets that you may take into your life now as, let's say, a British Indian, that responsibility is on you. And that's what Planet Nourish does. And we are a health transformation program, our average age group is sort of 45 to 75, pre-diabetic, gestational diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And we work with people over a 12-month program and we are culturally tailored to South Asians. That's the most important thing. So we work with people very deeply, one-to-one, to understand their cultural patterns around them eating, enable them to understand it. There's a lot of behavior change and psychological coaching that goes into it to help them pull out of old narratives around eating and to build a sustainable pathway for themselves and their families. The thing that we see every single time is that people have so much information, but they're so time poor because everyone's working. So they say, well, I have all this information I'm time poor and I have responsibility. So how do I put all of this together? So that's what we try to do at Planet Nourish. Thanks very much, Anjali. That's super useful and some incredible and very important work you're obviously doing. And Gunhild, on, on your side, so the EAT Forum is is looking at diets on a global scale and lobbying and campaigning. And I can really obviously feel both of your passion on this. On, and you're looking to raise awareness of the, the positive impact of healthy and sustainable food choices on planet and people. What was your journey to EAT and why did you think that it was so important to set it up? Well, that is a long story, but to try to take it short, I mean, I'm a medical doctor by background and an environmentalist at heart, really, since I was a kid. And I ended up in the food space, not really because I'm a foodie. I've 
I'm, I'm actually learning to cook as we speak. But as I served on the board of one of Scandinavia's biggest hotel companies, my ex-husband's hotel company, and started to look into what is the environmental or sustainability challenges of the hospitality industry. And I came across a report, this was back in 2012, stating that as much as 70% of an average hotel's environmental footprint is due to food and beverage. And obviously, as a medical doctor, I knew that food was a health issue, both in terms of undernutrition, micronutrient deficiencies, obesity, diet-related diseases, but I had no idea it was such a massive source of greenhouse gas emissions, biodiversity loss, water use. There were animal health and welfare issues. There were worker rights issues. And suddenly, all these global challenges were emerging on the plates. And back then I said, okay, so we have these 200 hotels. We need to set up some internal guidelines for what to serve that is good for people, good for the planet, and of course, good for our guests and employees. And I said, hey, I'm a scientist. Give me a couple of days. I will get back with the evidence uh, to underpin <laughs> Just a couple guidelines. of days. Yeah. So I was what, what I was actually uh, starting to, to search for, and I started Googling, was actually the Eat Lancet report. It didn't exist. There was lots of reports, again, back to the silos, nutrition and health, agriculture, environmental reports on animal health, welfare, food production, but nothing looking across. And this was actually before uh, the world adopted the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015. But when the development goals were adopted, it became crystal clear that unless we get it right on food, we don't stand a chance to deliver on these 17 global goals. And neither do we stand a chance to stay within 1.5 degree of warming. So, so basically, I started EAT to find answers, brought together the smartest people I know of and started out with Professor Johan Rockström at that time at Stockholm Resilience Center in Sweden. And then together we built a platform uh, really to bring uh, scientists across disciplines together. Uh, the EAT Lancet Commission became the first truly multidisciplinary research project to set targets, scientific targets for how to feed the world healthily and sustainably. And it became the platform where we could bring all the different stakeholders together to find solutions and ramp up collective action. Because that was also one of the my, my take home messages from my experience at the hotel board that unless we can make a profit doing the right thing, we don't stand. Well, we there is no way we will be able to do it. So we need governments to incentivize and regulate and make an even playing field. And we obviously need suppliers. We need consumers and guests to appreciate and, and demand what we are doing. So it really became clear to me that we are in the midst of a massive system failure. The food system was broken and there was no, there was no science, no platform that could actually change that. And now, I mean, eight years down the road, I'm so proud of how far the world has gotten. Obviously, it's not only about it. It has played a role here, uh, but so many 
actors around the world have contributed to make the first ever UN Food System Summit happening in September this year. And as a result of that, more than a hundred countries have now embarked on national pathways for sustainable, healthy, equitable food systems by 2030. So I'm saying that the, the work is starting now, but we now really, the world really gets that food is a system, that system is not working, it's failing people and planet, and we have to fix it to stand a chance to deliver on the sustainable development goals and on the Paris Climate Agreement. What would be, in your opinion, you know, what are the healthiest regions across the globe? You know, does that even exist? And and why are their diets so, so healthy? So we've spoken about the kind of the Western stroke industrialized diet, but on the flip side, there have to be some really healthy regions out there as well. So what can we learn from them? Angeline, maybe we can start with you. I think moving towards Asia is a very powerful step in the right direction to take learning from. And I think because they have a very, very close relationship with seasonality, change of seasons, and then locality. But also there are a lot of the cultures that are very, very deep, still parts of them very deeply steeped in tradition and culture, which really controls and sort of influences the way in which food is consumed. Because cuisine is a really essential part of building culture and building a relationship with food. So in India, for example, people will only eat certain fruits and vegetables at certain times of the year, and they will not eat outside of those boundaries. There is a growing population of sort of, let's say, younger millennials and Gen Z that are sort of opting into fast food culture there, but a lot of it at home, because you still have people that come home and do your cooking, because their knowledge is in older traditional cuisine, they will make high fiber meals for you that are very balanced and nourished. Um, So when I say high fiber, we're looking at 50% of the the meal being fruits and vegetables. We're talking if the protein part of it will either be legume centric, or it will be a local fish that's available seasonally. If it's not available, it's not there. And there are a lot of beans that are, are very prevalent in the South Asian diet as well. So and I think if you were to move further, into Southeast Asia as well. You've got the Vietnamese diet, sort of Japanese microbiotic diet. These diets themselves are very focused on seasonality, locality. And they also they also use a lot of older techniques. They also use fermentation as a core part. There's preservation is really, preserved foods are really powerful for gut health as well. So all of these traditions are seeping into sort of the Western part of the world as we see them and they're becoming trendy. But then I think a lot of the problem that we have is trend is trend. It's not culture. It's not ingrained. So you, how do you make trend convert to culture and have long lasting change? Yeah. So it's really interesting. So what you're saying is actually what like cultural traditions in different parts of the the world, for example, in, in India are actually helping to kind of control people to make sure that they eat seasonally, eat locally, preserve foods, which of course, like you say, is good for gut health, but it's also probably good for food waste. Well, I think the main the main reason I would say that is one thing that Asian markets have that sort of European markets don't have is that this idea of the supermarket. 
is a centralized location to buy your produce. It's a, it's a product of industrialization. It doesn't exist in a lot of different cultures and communities around the world. That's not how people interact with food. People, the way that in Asia, and the way that if you even look at a landscape of London, different ethnic groups will go to a local store to buy local produce where they can touch it, feel it, smell it, because they have an understanding of what it should be like. Therefore, when you're going to buy something from a local market, the person who's selling you the produce knows what's available locally, knows what's available seasonally. They are educating you and you're part of that process. So your understanding improves. Whereas vis-a-vis Western markets, we have great, huge, big supermarkets that are the controllers of our GDP. Mm-hmm. And they're the controllers of our growing conscious consumer mindset that have done really nothing until now in the UK. Maybe we can talk about that later. But they they control the narrative. But if I was to go to a supermarket here and say, what's in season? Nobody will know. Mm. They'll just say, that's all what's available. But actually, if you look, everything is available from everywhere in the world all the time. So we as consumers have a not real, we have no real understanding of what is seasonal, what is local, and what actually comes from our local land. Whereas in other markets, African markets, Asian markets, they have an understanding of seasonality and locality. Uh, and Gunhild, you know, from your perspective, it, have you seen on your on your uh, amazing travels? I'm sure you know some of the some great regions around the world which are particularly healthy and sort of that steeped in the culture. I mean, the, 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 there are of course many healthy regions in the world, although <laughs> everywhere populations are threatened by the the nutrition transition, as we talked about. I mean, we have the the famous blue zones, including in Japan, in Sardinia, in Italy, and a place in Costa Rica, and one of the the Greek islands, etc., where people, or a higher than usual number of people, live much longer than average. And obviously, the Eat Lancet diet or the planetary health diet is very close to the traditional Mediterranean diet, which is typical for these blue zones. But also just wanting to say that it's not only about the food you eat, it's about what I call the five core pillars of health. It's about eat, move, sleep, mindfulness, and touch and love. If you get it right on those five, then you are off uh, <laughs> to a long, healthy life uh, in most cases. So I, I think the, the, the problem, again, is that we are moving away from from what we used to eat. Even in the Nordic regions, if we go back and and look at what our grandparents used to eat, it was actually pretty healthy. Lots of protective foods. Angie mentioned, uh, well, fruits and vegetables, legumes, uh, nuts, seeds, and all these foods that are important for for getting the nutrients and vitamins uh, you need. And and we also have research showing that you can't take supplements and kind of compensate for a bad diet. It's about getting whole food, real food, and mostly plants and and a wide variety of, of plants in your diet. And that is actually interesting findings from the Global Burden of Disease uh, study that the most dangerous for your health or adverse health outcomes is actually not what you eat too much of, but what you eat too little of. So getting more of the good stuff uh, should be a key priority for everybody. So think about more colors, more nutrients and more flavors on your plate. 
Amazing. I loved your solution of the uh, five pillars, which is a very holistic, you know, behavior approach. And I think that's, you know, the behavioral approach is something you're taking too, Anjali. And and I think this is this is the hard one, right? Like you talked about fast food and we're all in a go, go, go culture. It's really hard. I mean, slow food and being mindful about what we eat is for me seems almost a utopian way forward. Like the, our lifestyles that we live now is just never really going to get us there. And, you know, at EIT Food, we have a focus on innovation and technology in terms of tackling some of the food system challenges. So I'll be really interested from hearing your perspectives. We talked about behavior. We talked about government influence. Do you think there is a space for science and technologies, any technological solutions to sort of operate in this space? Yeah, I, th- I think it, I think there needs to be, first of all, because we are we're technologically driven human beings that's how we work so if there isn't a science and tech approach then the adoption is going to be a lot less because we're constantly consuming technology so our minds are developing in that way and i think at planet nourish what we realized is that we need to build behavior change solutions that seem first nature and we need to mm-hmm. we need to find our way into this hidden narrative between a person's relationship with their lifestyle, the five pillars that Gunhill talked about, and how do they how do they view that? So we use a multi-dimensional approach. We use food as a core part, and we we connect food and community together. So it's eat, cook, connect. So food and cooking are a really, really important part that we have weekly sessions with around community because our our feeling is, is that if you can get 20 people to come together to cook and to have a conversation about their health and to exchange stories in one community and really get deep into the nitty gritty of what is holding them back from making that change, And if I see my same issue, that is my personal issue, mirrored in all three of us, all four of us here, then I'm more likely to be able to change because I recognize it's not just me alone. Mm. So at Planet Nourish, we try to use community as the core central pillar to build on mindset, to build on body, to build different relationships with food. And our methodology is very simple. It's very simple. We say to people, your plate needs to look a certain way. And however, the challenge to get your plate to look a certain way will take all of your effort. It will take you to plan better. It will take you to learn new recipes. It will take you to cry some days. It will take you to need to go for that walk because consistency is difficult, Mm -hmm. but consistency takes a community. So that's the approach that we have because we recognize getting anybody to make a change around their diet is very difficult, but getting community to do that and getting people to have conversations. So we utilize technology really for community. And what we've seen is phenomenal in the last six months. We see sort of an average weight loss of three kilos per person in three months, which is pretty phenomenal data to see, especially with the South Asian community that is notoriously quite resistant to having any adjustments in their cultural diet because they're so attached to it. But what we see is more empowering is the openness and the willingness of people to share and be transparent about their pain. And I think if we can show change and if we can show real uh, data change in that space using technology, then there's, it opens up a space globally for people to really sort of to transcend their own relationship with health. Mm, I like that. So the technology is the enabler for you to, to help people create a community 
to connect better with their foods. And what about you, Genhilde, with, um, you know, you've been uh, probably exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators in this space. Is there, what do you think about the role of science and tech to provide a solution for uh, healthier diets? Well, I absolutely believe it has huge potential and we are rooting for entrepreneurs and uh, startups everywhere and really want to empower them with uh, science and a holistic approach. So we end up addressing and solving root causes, not only fixing one problem and then you end up making a couple of new ones because you didn't think about all the different dimensions of what foods needs to deliver on. But I'm also very, very uh, firm on not letting tech be the solution. Uh, We need policy reforms. Governments must step up and govern. We need to hold business accountable and we need to shift billions, trillions of dollars in the world towards healthy, sustainable, equitable food production and healthy diets to get this right. And also what I think is really important that we get clearly across here is that we we can no longer talk about individual responsibility. Obviously, I agree on everything you said, Angie, and we should empower and inspire people everywhere to make better choices. Many, many people can make uh, small changes every time they sit down to eat. But today, you also, in many cases, you need to be uh, wealthy to be healthy and sustainable. We know that 3 billion people cannot afford a healthy diet in the world. And we also know that there is nothing inherent in in healthy food that makes it more expensive than unhealthy food. So the Mm -hmm. fact that the healthier options and the more sustainable options are the expensive ones or not even available in many people's community, that is a result first and foremost of the political economy around food and flawed policies. So that is why we need to get governments to put in place these holistic food policies really reflecting the true cost and the true value. Because if they start to to see all the hidden costs across health, across climate, environment, social inequalities, it makes so much sense. And it's such a potential for cost savings and business opportunities for governments to get it right. I just wanted to mention that, like, I think that the, the critical thing that we've seen that is going to really radicalize consumer interaction with food is the HFSS regulations that are coming into play next year. So high fat, salt and sugar regulation. There's a new legislation that's come into place that becomes active in July 2022. And basically it is regulating the way in which brands and products that are above a certain threshold that have been categorized as a red zone or an amber zone will not be able to market their product at checkouts and supermarkets. The first, usually if you go into a supermarket in the UK for sure, in the US, the first 20 meters of that supermarket are unhealthy products. From next year, they will not be able to be unhealthy. And this legislation is also going into hospitality as well. So I think really making, you know, government needs to make a change here, but it's business that needs to be make a change. And if business and government are still not going to work together, 
This regulation and legislation is the first pathway that consumers will be forced to think differently because they will not be marketed all of these products that are unhealthy for them. They will have to see different things. And I wonder what what supermarkets are going to put there. Are they going to put a lovely sort of salad display? Because that would be amazing to see healthy produce that if you went to a supermarket, you didn't see chocolate cakes because Christmas was coming or Easter bunnies. You saw healthy produce for that time of year. And that is the first, this is the first time I think that we are in the last 50 years that we're going to see a huge change in supermarkets. And that's going to be a very interesting way to see how the growing sort of, I think, signposted, you know, very small percentage in terms of like, if somebody said to me, Anjali, are you, if somebody said, well, would you, you know, are you thinking ethically about your diet? You might say yes, but you're not actually pushed to change. You still might buy that box of chocolates, but this is going to be a radical change because I'm going to be pushed to think differently because the supermarkets actually have the power. Mm. And so far you could say government has power. It's a siloed policy, but this is connecting many things together. I'm not sure if it's going to be powerful in 30, 40 years because we have other budding trends that are very unhealthy, but this would be a very radical, this is the most radical approach we've had so far. I, I like that, Angie. And I think, I mean, a decade from now, we will look back and say, I mean, think what they used to do uh, in 2021, <laughs> how crazy it was. We allow this ultra addictive, ultra processed junk to be available everywhere. Uh, we did not regulate. And obviously we now have the science to say that it is addictive to uh, a similar extent as alcohol and other addictive substances. So you also then need regulations to match that. And because a lot of, I mean, either you get eating disorders or you end up with diet related diseases. So so absolutely, the, this is very promising. Uh, I wasn't familiar with it, but it also has to have a component of sustainability. I hope that is being uh, thought about. And then obviously we, we also need labeling and we need, we need, again, the holistic, coherent policies all the way from agricultural subsidies. And we need to start paying farmers and food producers for producing what is healthy and sustainable uh, and make sure that they can actually make a decent living and have decent incomes by doing the right things. But today that's not the case. You are actually incentivized to make cheap, unhealthy and sustainable stuff. So again, we need private public partnerships and we need to get this holistic approach and we need to see food as medicine for people and planet. So with all that being said, you know, so talking going from today into the future then. So where do you think that global diets and nutrition is heading? I guess maybe let's rephrase that. Where would you like it to go? Um, what's your vision? This is very specific. I want to see a greater relationship and responsibility between supermarkets that control consumer budgets and consumer shopping and consumer behavior. Greater relationship between them and government to be able to educate consumers on how to cook and how to choose vegetables and how to eat local. These are the main three things that I would like to see. And supermarkets not having wide availability. They need to make radical change of not everything being available all the time. Mm. Love it. Radical change. That's what we like. And what about you, Gunhild? What's your vision of the future? Where would you like things to go here? 
That's an easy one for me. Its vision is for healthy, sustainably produced food to become available, affordable and attractive to people everywhere. And I think we have more variety. We have more choices. We can eat food that is good for everything, good for the workers that have produced the food, good for animals in the supply chain, good for our health, good for the planets. And it tastes amazing. And I don't think everybody needs to go back to the kitchen and start to cook. I think fast food doesn't have to equal junk food. I think there will be availability of healthy and sustainable food everywhere to affordable prices. So science shows that it's possible in theory. So now we just need to roll up our sleeves, work together and make it happen. Just before we forget, because we're coming to the end of the show, but I really would love to ask the question. And I'm I'm wondering where this is going to go now, actually, because I'm not even (laughs) sure if there is an answer. But in your opinion, what makes up the perfect diet? So taking into account all the things that we've talked about in terms of the diversity needed and the various different cultures and this sort of homogenization effect which is going on, is it possible for us to have a perfect diet? And if it is, you know, what are the constituents of that? You know, what should we be putting in our bodies? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say uh, it will look different in different regions, different countries around the world, different food cultures. Uh, But the common denominators will be plant-rich, could be plants coming from the oceans. It will be a wide variety of different uh, species. And it will be whole quality foods mainly. But then you, of course, have new technologies. You can start processing better. You might have lab-grown meat, precision fermentation, uh, food products, etc., etc. But I think for now, the cornerstones are really about a plant-centric, plant-rich, diverse, uh, whole food diet. Great. And Angelia, I can see you nodding away there. I assume you agree. Yeah, I agree completely. I think it's a hot... And I think I really like the fact that Gunhold said she's not used any sort of trendy language. It's plant-rich, whole. And I think whole is the most important word here is because veganism and plant-based has become a fad and it's a trend, it will become a fad and it does not define the same thing as whole foods. And whole foods is very different. That, that's what we need. It's just a whole foods diet. And it will change for everyone. And I love what Michael Pollan, the New York Times mm-hmm. food journalist, said. And I mean, it still, it still sticks, right? Eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah, that's and right. then, of course, love, we, love are, we, we'll, we need to build consensus and we need to agree on these global targets. So hence mm-hmm. why we are setting up another Eat Lancet Commission report from early next year. We are launching it. Great to hear. Ah, amazing. Look forward to that. I think my biggest takeaway from all this is that that term that I sometimes use to Western diet is really not true. It's really the modern industrialized diet is what's really been causing us harm. So that was a brilliant learning point for me. So thank you both so much for your time and for your insights. So before we wrap up, where can listeners go to find out more information about what you and what you do? So Anjali? Yep, you can go to planetnourish.com to uh, learn about the type 2 diabetes program we have. And you can go to bear.kitchen to learn about Empty Plates podcast. Ah, brilliant. What about you, Gunheld? You can go to eatforum.org and our websites, and then you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn uh, for some more inspiration. 
Ah, brilliant. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you both. And that just leaves me to say yeah, a huge thank you to Gunhild and Anjali. And thank everybody for listening in to this show. This has been the Food Fight Podcast. As ever, if you'd like to find out more, please head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu. And please also join the conversation via the hashtag EITFoodFight on our Twitter channel at EITFood. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button so that you never miss an episode. That's it for now. See you all for next time. <laughs>